Over the last several months, there's been a great deal of talk about the use cases for artificial intelligence. Millions around the world are excited and curious about the creative potential, labor, and time savings that AI might unlock. But AI's use cases don't end there. In this episode of Your Brain at Work, our co-founder, Dr. David Rock, connects with Dr. Teodor Grancharov, Professor of Surgery at Stanford University and Associate Chief Quality Officer for Innovation and Safety at Stanford Healthcare to explore a fascinating new use case for AI, saving lives in the operating room. Listen on for a fascinating exploration of how we might use AI to augment, rather than supplant, our humanity. I'm Evan McFalls, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Rock. I am um, really excited to be here with uh, one of the most fascinating scientists and researchers I've met in some time, Dr. Teodor Grancharov. Um, we've got an incredible uh, podcast today. I think you'll uh, might, it may blow your mind. We'll see. But uh, Theodore, welcome uh, to, to your Brain at Work Live. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Dave. And I, I hear some background noise there. Um, it sounds like you're at a conference or something. Where, where are you, Theodore? Yeah, right now I'm in Boston at the uh, annual conference of the American College of Surgeons, which brings together more than 15,000 surgeons from all over the country and internationally. So uh, I'm spending the next three days here and... Uh, I hope uh, you can hear me well and uh, there is not too much background, background noise. No, that's great. Thanks for joining us in your, your busy schedule. I know uh, every time I talk to you, you're somewhere else around the country saving lives. Um, so look, let's let's get into it. I want to tell the story a little bit, first of all, of how we met. I think it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, I was on the West Coast a few months ago um, running a workshop and we had uh, one of our, our partners from Stanford there, Sam Walt. And uh, Sam came up to me and said, David, I've, I, I, I've been listening to your work on, I think it was on growth mindset at the time and psych safety. And he said, I've been listening to all this and I can't get out of my head that, that you have to talk to this, this friend of mine who's doing incredible work, Tito. And, um, and he was so passionate about it. And, you know, I, I get this a lot. People say, oh, you have to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so. But Sam's a very smart man and I respect him and his work. And he, he, you know, he was one of those instances where I said, okay, I'll, I'll follow up. And I did. And I'm, I'm so happy that I did because, uh, Tito, you're, you're doing some of the most important, fascinating and cutting edge work in, um, not just in medicine, but in, in really just changing how humans, um, perform as, as teams. So, um, the, 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 the concept is this, um, I mean, I was talking to Sam and, and, and he said, you know, this, he's doing this amazing work. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then he said something that stopped me in my tracks. He said, look, it's really simple. Airplanes have a black box recorder. And since they did, anytime an issue has happened, they're able to study exactly what happens, you know, how people talk to each other, what went wrong with the plane and find the source of the problem and do something about it. And it saved countless lives. The fact that they've done this, he said, but, but the operating room, um, the operating room has never had that. Well, Teodor spent 20 years developing a black box recorder for the operating room so that when anything goes wrong there, um, they, they, again, have all the data and can actually study it and improve it. And, and, and suddenly my brain exploded. I said, no way. They're doing a black box recorder for the operating theater, but how, how could you possibly like analyze all the data? How would you possibly understand it? And of course, that's where AI comes in. So 
I reached out to Tito and, and we met Tito just a few months ago and we're able to really dig into this. Um, so, I mean, tell me how bad is the issue, first of all, how bad is the issue with medical mistakes, whether it's the, op you know, I don't know if you know data just on the operating room or there's data more broadly, but how bad is the issue with kind of mistakes that happen in the, in the medical situation? Yeah, that's, uh, so first of all, uh, I'm really happy that, uh, Sam introduced us and I'm really happy that, uh, we both found time. We were at the same time at the right, at, at the same place for a few days and had the opportunity to exchange ideas. And, uh, I found our conversation so inspiring. Uh, so really excited to, uh, participate in some of the brainstorming and, and, and I look at this as, uh, not just an isolated event where we, uh, exchanged ideas, inspired each other, but I, I hope this is a beginning of a, of a long-term collaboration because there's so much, uh, that's transferable from healthcare to so many other high risk, high performance industries. And so first of all, I, I clearly remember how uh, this idea came to life and, uh, it was, I was, I was early in my career and performed my first surgical procedure and felt that, that nobody could do it better than me anywhere in the world till I saw yeah. the video recording. Um, and the video recording was embarrassing and there were so many things I could do better. Um, but, um, and, and it, it kind of opened my eyes that, uh, uh, objective data, openness, transparency is a significant prerequisite for any improvement. Um, so, um, um, I also spent some time looking at how other high risk industries have done it. You, you mentioned aviation and we all make this association, uh, with the black box in airplanes that really contributed to making this form for transportation, one of the safest, uh, ever. Um, and yeah. in the early days, uh, uh the, the, the black box identified the reason for a crash. Uh, that's not how the black box, uh, works in airplanes works anymore. And now black boxes identify risks and patterns before they've resulted in the crash. And really that made this transition from reactive to proactive. That transition made, um, aviation from safe to ultra safe. And we've seen the same process in oil, in nuclear. Uh, in any other high risk industries, we still haven't seen it in healthcare and, and we feel that there is a big problem. As you said, the problem today, uh, is that, uh, according to many reports, healthcare has become one of the top three, uh, causes of, uh, death in the United States. So medical error is still very prevalent. Uh, iatrogenic harm is still very prevalent. Uh, and despite billions of dollars and investments uh, in better systems and better technologies, we haven't moved the needle in the past hundred years sufficiently to, uh, to get to a point where we want healthcare to be and, and especially surgery. Give, give me some, some data on that. Um, so just to, to kind of make this, um, even more tangible for people, you know, how many folks are, we, we accidentally harming or, you know, accidentally dying um, in, in medical errors each year, what is, is this a thousand? Is it 10,000? Is it like, how many people are we talking about? So, uh, the Institute of medicine came with their first report toward this human close to two decades ago. And according to that report, the estimate, they estimated that about 250,000 patients die as a, in the United States as a result of medical error. Uh, there are some other reports suggesting that number is much higher, close to 400,000. And obviously 
there are different methodologies of how this is estimated. Um, and some agree or disagree with these methodologies, uh, but there is no doubt uh, that there is a very significant number of patients who, sit, who experience iatrogenic harm in modern well-funded hospitals in the United States. Um, and um, this uh, needs to change. There are a lot of things that we can and we should do better. That's incredible. Now, you used a technical term that not everyone would know. What, what does that term iatrogenic mean for the listener? Iatrogenic means that uh, this is harm caused by the care provider, by the doctor or the nurse. Right, right. And do we know anything about the operating room itself? Is it, is it like what percentage of that is the operating room or is that, is that across the board in hospitals or is that all operating room? No, that's, a, that's across the board. Uh, and uh, there are many studies suggesting that uh, the, the, that's probably uh, half of uh, the, this number is, can be attributed to surgical care. And right. half of those are preventable. The fact that uh, harm happens uh, doesn't mean that it's always preventable, but uh, uh, we believe that more than half of those could be prevented with better education and better safety management systems. Right, right. So even if we're being conservative and we say, um, you know, it's, it's, it's say 300,000 a year, uh, maybe half is the operating room to 150,000 and half is preventable. That's still 75,000 people um, every year that, that are preventable deaths. That's an incredible number, even with it's conservative estimates. Um, I, I know you've been doing this for 20 years and, and, and started to really collect data and get some steam in the last few. I mean, you're, you're putting these um, black box recorders into as I understand, around 20 different uh, sites so far. Uh, roughly how many lives a year have you, have you been able to save so far? What, what sort of impact are you having, have you been able to make? We feel all that uh, as a result of uh, uh, better data and better processes, uh, we can save approximately two lives per operating room per year. Right. That's, that's amazing. And of course, there's all the, the, the accidents that don't happen, not just the lives saved and all sorts of other things. But that's, that's incredible when you, uh, when you think about it. Well, let's, let's dig into the process. Firstly, how do you collect the data? Let's talk about collecting the data and then understanding it and then leveraging it. But let's, let's start with how do you collect the data itself? What's the process there? Talk, talk us through it. So uh, the black box uh, is a set of sensors that we install in a modern operating room to collect information from everything that's happening there. So obviously video of the procedure, uh, audiovisual data from the flow in the operating room, data from the electronic health records, data from the devices used in the operating room, and so on and so on. So virtually any data structured or unstructured data source in the operating room is being captured, is being synchronized. Uh, and is being analyzed by a combination of uh, human and artificial intelligence to generate these sites. You mentioned to me you're collecting biodata as well, like uh, skin conductance and heart rate. What, what kind of biodata are you collecting from the surgeon and the surg surgical team? Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we've done a lot of work around uh, capturing uh, biometric data through wearable technology. One of the early projects we did was evaluating the impact of stress on surgical performance. Uh, and that could, uh, stress can be captured by a wearable tank top that measures heart rate variability. And one of the early findings was that when a surgeon is under stress, the likelihood of uh, making an error and causing an adverse event increases with 66%. 
Because then we also use similar approaches to measure attention and distractions and fatigue. Um, even uh, uh, using wireless EEG, we could uh, identify certain activations of the brain and how um, and what the, the neurophysiological and uh, neuroanatomical background is for good or bad performance in the operating room. We found that actually the, our brain recognizes an error is about to happen or adverse event, uh, event is about to happen approximately 30 seconds, half a minute before it happens. So uh, it, uh, it made us think uh, for the future of how we can communicate this, how can we alert the team uh, that uh, we're on in the right track, uh, in the wrong track, and uh, and really have this uh, forcing function or alarm that warns us prior to bad things happening in the operating room. That's that's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about in the, in the room, you've got you know lots of monitors monitoring different things. You know, if the person's heart rate starts going down a level that's that's heading towards dangerous, you know, you're going to get an alarm. If the person's oxygen levels go to a certain level, you know you're going to get an alarm. Uh, why not? If the if the surgeon's stress level goes to a certain level, you're going to get an alarm um, yes. that hopefully doesn't increase stress. But you yes. you think about sort of monitoring this data. This this might become just the way things are in you know in ten years. We might we might look back in in decades and go, wow, we can't believe we tried surgery without these things. Uh, but that's that's an amazing thing. So you're collecting all the sounds. You're collecting all the video, but people are also wearing vests and some of them having e uh, portable EG. So you're collecting an incredible amount of biometric data, um, and and that's where you'll be able to get predictive. That's yeah, that's really really exciting. Um, the the how do you find this the surgeons and and, and nurses you know sort of respond to uh, you know integrating with this? What's it, you know when they uh, I guess there's a difference between when they first hear it and they get used to it, but you know how do you find their responses to this? Yeah, doesn't. That's a great question. And uh, so first of all, probably the first natural response is anxiety. <laughs> this is yeah. something that we're not used to seeing. This is These are things that we're not used to measuring. Uh, over the past couple of centuries, we made the operating room one of the most secretive, the secretive environments in modern society. Um, oh, wow. So uh, changing that overnight is not natural. It's not easy. But once um, people started using uh, the data people start um, you, uh, turning the, the information that we generate into insights, uh, we can see how their attitude changes. And I can tell you that surgeons, nurses, technical teams working in the operating room are competitive people. Uh, we all get up in the morning with the thought of how can we do the best we can for the patients that we're going to meet today. And uh, uh, once we start realizing that we can't improve without object objective measurement of our performance and without actionable insights that point what we do right and what we do wrong. Once we realize all this and we touch and feel it and start using it, uh, it opens the world of open mindset uh, and continuous improvement, and it's fascinating. It it is really uh, uh, it really unlocks the creative and competitive potential of of, uh, of every individual and the team uh, and those hospitals who have the right environment uh, to support this transition and to empower their staff to embrace 
uh, the open mindset and the opportunity of, of, of improvement can realize tremendous gains, not only in terms of quality and safety, but also in terms of efficiency and productivity. Interesting. You know, th what I hear is, is so many connections to the concept of growth mindset. Um, you know, uh, growth and fixed mindset um, uh, are two mindsets that have been studied for, for decades now, originally in the academic literature as entity theory and incremental theory. Um, and then Carol Dweck uh, kind of labeled them as growth and fixed mindset and brought them to schools. And about a decade ago, we start to bring this into organizations and framed up organizational growth mindset and have been studying this and deeply applying this um, to, to uh, hundreds and hundreds of large organizations. But it's, it's, it's so relevant to the operating room because you, you think about a fixed mindset, it's all about looking good um, and trying to prove that you're smart, right? You can, you can hear that in, in, you know, in, in, in sort of the way you explained yourself before you watched the video, you know, you felt good, you felt smart, you were trying to look good. And then when you see the video of yourself, you're like, oh, wow, there's, there's actually things I can do to get better. Um, but I, so I'm going to have to learn. You can, you can almost hear that shift from fixed mindset to growth mindset. Um, in, in, in your story. And it's huh. scary in the beginning. It's, uh, this is not an easy natural transition. Uh, but uh, once you taste it, once you experience it, it's impossible to go back. Right. Isn't that interesting? What a wonderful statement. So you can imagine surgeons and, and nurses here and doctors and others you know, sort of coming into this idea and having a fixed mindset, first of all, having anxiety, being concerned about looking good, being concerned about maybe litigation, being concerned about all sorts of things and um, wanting to prove maybe they don't need it. And then at some point things switch and they go, wow, I can be so much better with this process. I can actually improve myself. Um, I can get better if I, if I really harness this technology. And it must be a fascinating moment to watch people kind of changing there. So, so let's, let's shift from collecting the data. It's amazing. Um, but, but, you know, you, I think you mentioned one point, you had a million data points per, um, per operating room per day, uh, which is an incredible amount of data. If you're collecting all this biometric data and video and audio, there's so much, uh, like, how do you process that? And, and, you know, data is useless, useless in a way without kind of insight. Um, how, how do you get from data to insight? And then maybe what kind of insights do you find? Maybe first of all, just give us the, the sort of summary of how do you get from data to insight? And then, yeah, let's dig into sort of what, what kind of insights do you see? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. So we collect data from everything and that uh, is an enormous amount of data. We, we, that's, that's close to uh, half a million data points, half a million to a million now uh, data points per operating room per day. And that's impossible for the human brain to constantly monitor all these data points and make and, and, and look for associations or hidden dependencies uh, between these data points, um, aggregate some of these data points and turn it into insight and interaction. This is, uh, this is close to impossible. Um, so uh, that's why we feel that uh, modern technology, uh, modern AI methodologies can do so much better and can empower us to make the right decisions and take the right actions in the operating room. So uh, if we take a thing like, uh, for example, uh, everybody talks about surgical side infections. It, it, it is an important, it is a dangerous complication after surgery. Uh, and there are many factors here. We as surgeons probably have the capability to identify one of those factors. Did we give antibiotics or not? 
but there are so many more. Uh, did we cause bleeding? Was the, did the patient have the right temperature? Did we maintain the oxygen level adequate? How was the uh, glycemic control and so on and so on. So, so these are all parameters that matter when we prevent a post-operative complication. Uh, and um, using our uh, uh, experience, research experience, and now modern technology uh, with uh, machine learning and, uh, and other aspects of, uh, of artificial intelligence, we can collect this, info this data, we can process it, uh, we can turn it into several or a few or several actionable insights and deliver them to the patient, to, to, the, uh, to, to the surgeon or the clinical team. Uh, and this is really the unique opportunity here. As, as you mentioned before, data is useless, data is cheap if we don't turn it into information that clinicians can use uh, to change behavior or take the right decision. Yeah, that's that's important. It's it's how do you get from the you know all this data to actual insights? What what are some of the most poignant insights that you're finding in the data? What are some of the most powerful things? I mean, you mentioned one of them earlier that you can actually see about thirty seconds before uh, an error that it's about to happen. Um, but what what are some of the other findings in, or insights in the data itself? I mean, uh, we've, we've got so many, and uh, we talked a lot. Um, uh, about distractions. So today, uh, or for a very long time, we knew, intuitively knew that distractions are not a good thing. Somebody comes in the operating room uh, who shouldn't be there and starts talking about uh, the football game they watched last weekend or their weekend plans next week. Um, um, Oh, any uh, any other uh, sources of distraction? The fa the phone ringing, the pager going off, uh, irrelevant alarms, alarms uh, uh, turning on and off. There there are tons of distractions. The door opening and closing. So we had no idea how disruptive they are to our work. We had no idea that actually they that they are some of the root causes for some. Uh, catastrophic adverse events. For example, uh, the the scrap nurse counting the instruments before and after the procedure while being distracted can lead to incorrect counts. When the count is incorrect uh, at the end of the procedure, that increases the risk of um, you know retained foreign objects and uh, and and the patient can go home with a sponge that wasn't accounted for. Uh, during the, the post-operative briefing. So uh, distractions impact us on so many levels, impacts our performance, it, it impacts our attention, it leads to suboptimal performance and increases the risk of never events. We had no idea that that was so important and that was the root cause before we started quantifying the data. Uh, and, uh, and then with that information now, we can um, introduce new standard operating procedures. We can create mitigation strategies to reduce the risk of distraction during critical steps of the operation. Similar to what's done in aviation, uh, with the concept of sterile cockpits, uh, where uh, there, there no non-operational discussions are allowed when the plane is under 10,000 feet. And we introduced similar concepts uh, in the operating room during critical steps of the procedure uh, that really reduced 
these risks and eliminated in some instances uh, the post-operative never events. Interesting, interesting. So, um, so <clears throat> there have been big insights around stress. There's been insights, big insights around distractions. Um, and uh, uh, what else? What, what other kind of big insights have you had in the in the process? We've had also we've also had some very interesting insights around. Um, communication, collaboration, and all these things that we call, we can summarize them under non-technical skills during surgery. So this is leadership, situational awareness, communication. Um, so uh, we, we, we found that uh, those teams who underperform on the, on the non-technical aspects introduce very significant risks to patient safety. We always assume that in surgery, the most important factor was the technical skills of the operating surgeon, how well he or she can suture tissues and dissect blood vessels and, uh, and uh, uh, extract uh, or resect uh, a tumor. Uh, but we always underprioritized the, imp the importance of the team, the importance of uh, the non-technical uh, communication, collaboration, psychological safety. And we've been we've demonstrated repeatedly uh, that often these non-technical aspects are much more predictive for post-operative outcomes than the technical skills of the operating surgeon. And that, and that also changed uh, 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 our approach to culture in the operating room, promoting the culture of collaboration, support, psychological safety, because often that's the only barrier uh, between uh, successful and and catastrophic outcome. So, so uh, uh, the, the the concept of of, of non-technical skills and improving non-technical skills, including psychological safety and culture, was something that uh, was a very significant insight. And and many hospitals realized that with the movement towards high reliability, uh, this is very significant factor. And the fact that we can measure it today, uh, and we can communicate it, and we can see the relationships. Uh, between these uh, factors and post-operative outcomes really allowed us to drive this culture change in surgery that we will all want to see uh, in order to become an ultra-safe industry. That's fascinating. Which, which would you say is the biggest factor you've found? Is it psychological safety, distractions, or stress, or something else? If you were, you know, if you're solving for one thing that was most important first, mm -hmm. which would you solve for? I I, uh, I don't know what I'll point uh, uh, one, and I, I, I don't think we should put them on the same scale, but I, I really think that it all starts with with culture and psychological safety is clearly related to culture. Without changing culture, without without changing, without making this transition from fixed to growth mindset across all layers of an organization, it is very unlikely that we will see this last step. We, we talked about collecting data, turning it into insights, but the last and most important step is operationalizing these insights, turning them into action or improvement. That's not going to happen without the cultural transformation that we still haven't seen to, to uh, the level we wanted to see in healthcare and in surgery. Right. So we need growth mindset in every part of the organization that's, that's touching you know, these processes. And then we also yes. need psychological safety in the, you know, in the operating room itself, uh, but also in in support. That's fascinating. That tracks so closely with the research that's been done in other domains. That that the intelligence of a team doesn't actually uh, link all that much to the intelligence of individuals or the average or the spiky intelligence of individuals. 
if the team needs to work together, um, it actually correlates much closer to how well the team interacts and how much people take turns speaking when they should be. Um, it's been really closely studied at uh, MIT with Anita Woolley, Chris Chabri, and others. Uh, but there's a there's a there's actually an intelligence of a team that can be measured and is fairly static across time and tasks. And that that's what I'm hearing here. Uh, fascinating. There's so much more I want to dig in. We might have some some further conversations about that and, and kind of thinking about that. But let's let's get to the third important chapter, right? One of the things we've learned in doing culture change work across organizations, and, and we've been working with both growth mindset and psych safety um, in healthcare, but in many other organizations, what, what, one of the things we've learned is, is you don't get there by doing this just top down and you don't get it by doing just grassroots. You actually create this culture change through what we call the everyone to everyone model, um, which, is, which is about giving a little like a little bit of insight um, to everyone all at the same time um, so, that, so that these new ways of thinking become uh, normative as quickly as possible. Because the, 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 the biggest reason um, research shows that people do something is they think everyone else is doing it. And so, so, so a lot of the culture change is about kind of getting everyone on board with an idea roughly at the same time and everyone thinking everyone else is doing it. So we, we call that the everyone to everyone model as opposed to the top-down model or the grassroots model of, of organizational change. And it's, it's sort of shifting from giving a few people a lot of insight slowly to giving everyone a little bit of insight quickly. Um, and, and just getting everyone to do a couple of things differently seems to start this real movement. That's something we've learned about, about culture change. But um, tell us about your experience, Theodore, with, with getting from the, you know, the data to insight to, to culture change. Um, you know, what have, what have you learned about sort of, you know, getting people really doing things differently in the operating room and beyond? I love the everyone to everyone model. And uh, we've, uh, we've, we've reached that conclusion through uh, uh, organic thinking on, and, and organic uh, impressions from uh, uh, the now close to two dozen hospitals using the oral black box. And where we've seen some hospitals introduce it as a as a top down approach, and others as a bottoms up approach. Uh, and uh, it, unless the organization is aligned around um, the vision of creating data that that allows us to critically uh, reflect on our performance, and using this data to drive improvement on every level, from the bottom to the top of the organization, unless this becomes a reality. I think we'll have uh, significant challenges with the last and most important step of the process of improvement, which is turning the information to action in our everyday activities. Yeah, fantastic. Tell me about, just to, to make this a little more tangible, tell me about some of the kind of changes to procedures you've made. Just, I don't know if you can walk through two or three, what, three, just kind of quickly. What are some of the changes you've put in place? And, and if you know anything about the impact of those, you mentioned one earlier, like no distractions or side conversations during certain procedures. What, what other kinds of habits have you put in place so far? I think a fascinating story is the way uh, one of our partner institutions operationalized the data around the surgical safety checklist. Uh, I assume many are familiar with the work of uh, Atul Gawande um, and the uh, uh, World Health Organization around introducing checklists in surgery and initial work showed that prop when properly introduced, these checklists reduce significantly morbidity and mortality in a multicentral trial. Uh, so we, one, of the, one of the areas where the black box monitors is the up, uh, 
compliance to standard op operating procedures, one of those is surgical safety checklist. And I remember when that was introduced in one of the hospitals in the United States, uh, they found that there were significant opportunities for improvement. It was impressive how the organizational leadership took this uh, information and made it a strategic quality initiative on an organizational level. Uh, how they uh, uh, shared information, how they engaged uh, the team spirit in the organization, the desire to do the right thing for their patients. Uh, and that paid off, that, that changed their compliance dramatically from uh, an average in the network, they became the absolute top performer. And you could see where they could measure what that meant for the care of their patients. It, it, it uh, their patients, it led to elimination of never events. It led to statistically significant reduction of morbidity and mortality. And it's one of the most fascinating processes to observe. They really showed that chain from data to insights to change of culture and uh, change of processes result in dramatic change in outcomes. And, and this is uh, the purpose of why we do this and why we feel that this is the future of how we should do business in a high-risk environment like surgery and healthcare. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, as we opened with Let's Close, you know, this has implications for any um, high-risk environment. You can imagine, um, you know, an, an oil rig having a black box recorder in the way they um, interact with, you know, the, the safety there. Um, I was thinking about the, the um, Deepwater Horizon disaster that happened in the Gulf. The, 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 the story goes that as the danger got worse, the arguments got more fierce between the two groups because there were kind of two different companies that were managing that. And um, you can imagine, you know, drilling, mining, manu many manufacturing, you know, high-tech manufacturing, there's all sorts of places where this idea slowly could become relevant, but it's going to have to be based on real science um, for both collecting the data, finding the insights, and driving change. Um, so, in, you know, incredible, uh, incredible work, and and I know it's been a 20-year overnight success for you, uh, Tito. But congratulations on the incredible impact that you're having, um, and uh, uh, super look forward to digging in further and finding ways that we can support you in. Uh, in developing those insights and driving the change. But I think we'll wrap up there. Um, Tito, any, any closing comments before we, uh, we go? Any closing comments that you'd like to share with people? No, just want to thank you, Dave, for, uh, uh, so first of all, uh, reaching out and, and meeting. Uh, and uh, the more we talk about uh, this and the more, uh, the, the, the more ideas I, I generate and the more excited I am about uh, collaborating and, and learning uh, uh, from each other and, and how we can uh, use some concepts that have been so successful uh, through your work uh, over the years in other industries and bringing some of these concepts into surgery combined with the objective data that we generate. I think it could be something very powerful and, uh, and I'm very optimistic about this future transition of surgery into ultra-safe, predictable, um, and, uh, um, and precise industry. Amazing. Let's make surgeries uh, as ultra safe as flying is, which uh, you know has made incredible progress in the last few decades. And it'd be amazing to have that same kind of impact impact there. Tito, thank you so much for the work you do out there. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, I look forward to further conversations and collaborations. Thank you so much. Pure Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. 
You can help us make organizations more human and higher performing by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast. Our producers are the Neuroleadership Institute marketing and brand team, including Shelby Wilburn, Evan McFalls, Tony Clare, Allison James, and many, many more. Thanks so much for being here with us today, and we hope to hear from you again soon. Take care.